Fresh air cures unfreshness. The sun is less two-dimensional than it looks. Insects would gladly stomp us too. Hills have their downsides, get it? I've seen rocks you could never imagine. I call global warming globe warmth to save time. Am I old enough to know what fertilizer really is now? Handholds are for hands only. I've been known to mistake fur for hair. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. And while some people think that 12th is a difficult word to say, I don't agree. I say the word 12th with ease, and I never try to think of creative ways to avoid having to say it out loud in the company of other people. Out of All Doors is a podcast about what you find when you successfully navigate yourself away from all your indoor problems and concerns and find yourself at long last without a single door standing between yourself and the natural world. And yes, screen doors count. It's no secret the summer is winding down. You've probably noticed the incremental shortening of days, the back-to-school junk mail in your mailbox, the forlorn looks on the faces of people who were told by reliable prophets that they would die at summer's end. Soon it will be cold. Soon the afternoons and evenings will be far less conducive to cooking and eating outside. So, listeners, you need to seize these last few days of summer by the neck, fire up the grill, clean the bird droppings off of the patio furniture, and have some cookouts, some picnics, and some backyard barbecues for the whole neighborhood, minus everyone in your neighborhood who would worsen a backyard barbecue with their mere presence. Now, I myself do not know how to grill, but I'm related to some people who do, and I often enjoy the fruits of their labor. Or should I say the meats of their labor? I suppose I could, but I'm already envisioning the slippery slope where I end up saying things like, the search for the missing boy proved meatless, or be meatful and multiply, or from Purple Mountain's majesties across the meated plains, or my least favorite brand of undergarments is meat of the loom. I'd basically just be replacing the word fruit with meat a lot, and you, yes, even you, would grow to hate me. Besides, fruit has its place at a cookout, too. Watermelon is a perfect example. What watermelon-themed cookout would be complete without at least one watermelon? And corn, while not a fruit, is a cookout staple in its own right, especially if it's still clinging to a cob. When I'm getting corn on the cob for a cookout, I like to buy it from a roadside stand as long as the roadside corn merchant isn't one of those slick talkers who's always trying to convince you to buy way more corn on the cob than you really need, plus a few squashes and an engagement ring even though you're already married and the diamond in the ring is actually just a stray kernel of corn that's become separated from its cob of origin. No, what I prefer is a roadside corn merchant who's so sick that he or she just prefers to sleep on a mat on the ground while you use the honor system to select and pay for your corn on the cob. I'm a big fan of all applications of the honor system, actually, although I find its ironic title a bit distasteful. One thing that a lot of people, including me, forget about cookouts is that there need to be enough plates or else people are just going to dig up your yard, spray the black earth with your garden hose to create mud, fashion the mud into crude disks, and then leave those disks to bake in the sun until they become plates. And then they'll have the gall to complain to you when their steaks taste dirty. 
And I've seen many cookouts ruined by a family dog who keeps stealing burgers from right out between the buns in people's hands. And then when the people take bites, all they get are mouths full of bread and condiments. Meanwhile, the dog's over here. He's got all these burgers, but no buns and only what condiments remain on the meat. So he's not too happy either. His victory is seeming kind of hollow. And meanwhile, the cook is over there starting to sweat because way more people are asking for seconds and thirds on the burgers than he was expecting. And he's worrying he's going to run out of meat. But also, no one's complimenting him on the burgers, so he doesn't know what's going on. And meanwhile, the dog's filthy stolen burger pile is starting to attract some unsavory neighborhood characters, such as the Marfalathe family, whom you did not invite and who always walk around with wild possums on leashes, hissing and clawing at their own necks. Now, there are those who will tell you that potato salad has no place at a real American cookout. And there are those who will tell you that it does have a place. And there are those who will not listen to your question and answer with a non-committal, hmm. But I'm here to say that in my book, potato salad not only belongs at a cookout, there should be ample quantities of potato salad so that every guest may have some. Not just the loudest and the pushiest and the least allergic to potatoes. Every guest. But if some guests choose to not have any, then their portions immediately go to the loudest guest. But what do you do if you show up to a cookout and you're just not hungry? How are you going to have a good time when eating is really the only thing to do? One way is to count the hot dogs. Then, at the end of the cookout, count how many hot dogs are left. Subtract the second number from the first number, and you'll know exactly how many hot dogs were eaten at the cookout. If there are no hot dogs at the cookout for you to count, then you are doomed to not have any fun at the cookout, and you should just thank the host for inviting you, apologize for your traitorous stomach, and head home. But what do you do if you show up to a cookout and you're too hungry, like unnaturally hungry? This is an even trickier predicament to navigate, because on the one hand, you don't want to upset people by eating more than your fair share, but on the other hand, you're already running amok, gobbling everything in sight like a monster, overturning furniture and holding the host at bay with his own barbecue fork while you shovel raw meat into your gaping maw. In a situation like this, it's appropriate to actually spend the money to send the host a thank you card, and then on the inside of the card you write, If I am somehow at fault for how hungry I was, then I apologize. Whether or not you mean it is up to you. I wouldn't dream of instructing you on something so personal. But one thing's for sure, cookout season is nearing its conclusion. Sure, you could be one of those people who grills all through the winter, digging paths to your grill through the snow and getting your picture taken waving with tongs awkwardly clutched in your mittened hand and your glasses all fogged up and all that. And I obviously fully endorse spending as much time out of all doors as possible, but just don't do that. It's just not a good idea. I'm hesitant to tell you why. Maybe some other time. Let's just begin, shall we? These are the top five people you meet at an outdoor cookout. Number one is the barbecue master. This guy has his own special barbecue sauce that'll knock your socks off and will have your taste buds begging for mercy. His recipe goes back almost 200 years to when his great-great-great-grandfather used to roast whole hogs over the open flame of a frontier campfire. The barbecue master has carried this family tradition down through the ages and now offers it up to any willing guests who know that when they taste the powerful kick of that barbecue sauce, they'll be hooked for life. Though many have asked, requested, and implored the barbecue master for even a hint of what his recipe is, he remains tight-lipped, 
unwilling to dish out anything but the finest barbecued ribs, loins, and sundry other organs for your finest feasting fitness. Get ready, get set, get eating. The second type of person you always see at an outdoor cookout is the other barbecue master, who has his own recipe and credentials, thank you very much. He will fight the first barbecue master to the death to see who has the better barbecue sauce, a match that only benefits any hungry, hungry guests at the outdoor cookout. The other barbecue master's sauce is tangier and yet fuller in a way that's neither better nor worse than the first barbecue master's sauce, though don't tell either of them that. These two have been known to roll around on the lawn of the outdoor cookout, battling with word, deed, fist, and sauce to find out who's the true victor in this epic battle of the best barbecue master. And third we have, well, yes, it's another barbecue master. This guy claims he has a sauce so good and so original it's better than the other two sauces combined, which doesn't really make sense as a claim because the other two sauces would worsen each individual sauce and this create a foul-tasting mess of a combined sauce. But anyway, we're giving him the benefit of the doubt because here he comes, striding out onto the lawn, wearing a won't you barbecue my, won't you barbecue mine apron, and holding his spatula above his head as if it were a broadsword. The third barbecue master's recipe is a secret as well, but it comes with its own very noble backstory and impressive credentials, etc., etc. The third barbecue master has to share the grill with the second barbecue master because, no, we don't have a third grill. Just divide it up. The fourth person you always see in an outdoor cookout, yeah, you guessed it, it's another barbecue master. We all know this type. Anyway, the fifth person you always see at an outdoor cookout is, of course, the corn man. The corn man wears a corn mascot costume, grills and eats only corn on the cob and, to a lesser extent, baby corn. He will turn down any offers of meat from the hundreds and hundreds of barbecue masters, claiming he only wants those juicy cobs. Watch as he butters that corn with a kingly abandon. Watch as the corn slathers his chin as he gnaws it compulsively. Watch as the corn bits fly into the brilliant blue light of day. The corn man unceasing in his enjoyment. Whoa, hold on, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The corn man is taking off his costume to reveal that he is yet another barbecue master. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have yet another barbecue master. <sighs> poetry fans this is cousin ben back again to help you get through those long stretches of being indoors that a lot of you no doubt have to suffer through well never fear because poetry is here poetry will never leave you or forsake you poetry will always be there at the end of a long day of wrestling with the woes of prose where she can give you a gentle or a rough neck massage if you so require it before we get started with the massages we need to have a talk Cousin Adam and I had a creative meeting, and we discussed the future of the poetry segment here on Out of All Doors. And well, look, we're all adults here. I'm a professional. I can handle and process constructive criticism with the best of them. And let's just say that's what it was. Cousin Adam and I collaborated. We collaborated on the direction of the poetry, and I agreed 
that not everyone shares muses and inspirations, and perhaps not everyone can appreciate what a fertile muse nature's floods are to me. So we'll move on to other areas of inspiration from now on. So, this first poem is about something that we all can relate to. I doubt there's a single one of you out there who hasn't had a similar moment in nature. Nap time. It's just good math. Take one rolling green valley and add one calm day, and a nice smelling honeysuckle tree, quite acceptable for napping against, and you won't need a calculator to tell you that the answer is to take a load off and rest a spell. But she was sharper than most, and even without any math-making device, she saw the sum from a far way out. But the sweet breeze and the smell of the honeysuckle multiplied her re relaxation to surprising levels, and soon she stayed much longer than she had planned. As she thought of the obligations she was neglecting and the meetings rapidly approaching, a light drop of rain patted her arm. But what's this? No, not rain. But oil? No. No, no. Just a black ant. As she watched the little fellow crawl across her arm and drop onto her pant leg, she smiled, wondering about his obligations and meetings. She breathed a deep, relaxed breath and started to rise, when she felt her hair move, and then more black raindrops on her arms. She shook her head, squinted up at the tree as she stumbled past the branches overhead, out into the sun, only to be greeted by a face full of the insects. The crawling rain cared not for her screams as it blackened out the sun, painting the ground with a living tar. The glistening mass deepened with an exponential rate, her frantic run now plowing nature's most industrious raindrops with her shins. Two wakes behind her as she swings her blackening arms in white arcs with which to add leverage to her labored steps. Exhausted and panicking, she looks up the valley to where the sun once looked over the hilltop and lit all the gently blowing grass. But she sees no ball of nuclear heat now, just an insect tidal wave of shimmering drones and a deafening sound like tearing paper. With nowhere to go and no hope to hold on to, she closes her eyes as the black and rolling sea of legs and pinchers quenches all the life from the little valley. Coughing and spitting, she starts awake. The valley and the tree all present and accounted for. Her nap rudely cut short by the curious ant that crawled into her snoring mouth. Some of you may remember a few episodes ago when we received an angry letter from a professor who was upset over our hermit coverage. And uh, unfortunately, Casey's recent contributions have resulted in another angry letter from the same professor, so I'm going to read that now. Dear Adam, I had assumed that my second correspondence with you would be to graciously accept your offer of a well-compensated regular segment on Out of All Doors explaining hermitology to your fine but ignorant audience. Much to my amazement, however, I have received no such offer and thus have reason to write you only to correct, pro bono, another of your program's egregious theoretical blunders. 
Once again, your podcast has wandered into the dark forest of philosophy, only to find that the forest is not a forest at all, but a deep ocean of confusion, in which you cannot tread water, and which is full of stinging jellyfish, and the jellyfish stand for errors. I am referring, of course, to the completely uninformed discussion of the quote-unquote multiverse in your last episode, an idea so ridiculous that no serious scholar would propose it. Now you might reply, but wasn't modal realism the theory that all possible worlds is just as real as the actual world and that the actual world is unique only in the fact that it's the world we happen to occupy, proposed and deftly defended by the world-renowned philosopher David Lewis in his 1986 book On the Plurality of Worlds? To which I reply, again, you have fallen into the dark cave of ignorance to be bitten by the millipedes of stupidity. David Lewis was a total hack, and every serious philosopher is inconsolably perplexed by the fact that he was given distinguished professorships at UCLA and Princeton. It is abundantly obvious to anyone whose rational faculties have not been deformed by our thoughtless culture of satellite radio and rechargeable batteries that we do not live in a multiverse, but a biverse. In simpler terms, there are exactly two universes, our own, and one that is identical to our own in every way except the following. A. The Ponderosa Steakhouse restaurant chain did not go out of business, but is recognized as the most successful and customer-friendly restaurant that exists. B. One does not need a valid passport to travel to Canada from the United States. And C. Hermitology is taught at every major university in North America and is the primary major of a full two-thirds of college students. The only other difference is that, unlike us, our counterparts in Universe B all know that there is a biverse and regularly say to one another, when some tragedy befalls them, I will not despair, for what is my burden compared to that of the poor souls in Universe A? Sadly, no such comfort is available to me. Nevertheless, I do not lament my fate in being assigned to the far inferior universe, for the water of my knowledge is more needful in this desert of ignorance. I hope, but do not expect, that your listeners will drink of it. Yours, John Greiston, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So, with that in mind, now, here's this. and Casey traverse the multiverse. Ah, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas and I say pajamas I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas Jeepers creepers, Jason. Is this really another version of Earth? One from somewhere across the multiverse? It's true, Casey. We've succeeded in breaking the boundaries of time and space. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's do some exploring. (laughs) 
Now, now, remember our mission here is to find the home planet of that infernal diary, the one you erroneously believe to be composed by your Earth's Adam Drent. Sure, but we can still manage to successfully party at the same time, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I got a guitar case filled with uppers in the back of the portal hopper. Wait, I, th- I thought you sold everything to fund your experiments, but you kept your guitar? No. I said I have a guitar case full of uppers. I pawned my guitar to fund the project. But then on my way home from the pawn shop, I ran into this dude I know, Ricky, and he traded me a guitar case full of uppers for the money I'd gotten for my guitar. He threw in some Thin Lizzy and Slade cassettes, so it was a pretty good deal. Parte. Most definitely. Well, let's check this world out. Jason, look, over there. It must be this world's Adam Drent. We should approach him. Ask if the diary might belong to him. Adam. Hey, Adam. He doesn't seem to be responding. Excuse me, you there. Yes, were you speaking to me? I heard someone call Adam, but you must be confused. That's not my name. My name is Jason. What? Is that surprising for some reason? Well, you could certainly say that. Casey, clearly this is this Earth's Adam Drent as he appears exactly as he does on your Earth. Yeah, you can tell by the baseball cap and the fistful of soda. Excuse me, are you referring to my pop? Shut up, Jason. It's called soda. On this or any other Earth, rational people call it soda. Now there's a handful of uppers in it for you if you just give me a second to talk to my friend here. Now, Casey, as far as I can tell, on this planet, at Adam's birth, he just so happened to be named Jason. Well, then that means this can't possibly be the planet the diary came from, because each entry in the diary is signed, Love Adam. Well, on this Earth, this Jason might know another Adam who does a podcast called Out of All Doors, but who keeps a diary in which he writes about people who work for that podcast. Wait, he signs it Love Adam? I mean, I knew you kept saying diary, but I just figured it was like his journal, cataloging stuff from throughout his day, but... Yeah, no, 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 no. It's like a little girly diary with stickers all over the entries and pictures of pandas and things done in in, um, those those glitter markers in the corners of the pages. He signs the M in Adam as like a a heart. The M? Yeah, it's like a swoop, swoop with the, uh, the curves at the top. But then instead of the sides going straight down, they come down to like a point to make the bottom of the heart. It's cute. It sounds cute. I, I don't really, that's one thing I've always wanted to like develop, a cool signature. You know, I don't, I don't have anything like that. It's just Jason, blah. That's it. <clears throat> Gentlemen, I believe I'll take that handful of uppers now as I've been most agreeable with your requests. Ah, God. Just tell me one thing, Jason. Do you happen to know anyone named Adam? Of course I do. I mean, you'd have to go through life living under a rock, not ever meeting anyone ever named Adam. Okay, yeah, but would you picture yourself ever popping up, being written about in the diary of someone named Adam? Hmm, if if it was the right Adam, sure, yeah. Yeah, why not? Okay, so no. Jason, do you happen to know anyone named Casey By? Sure, that's him right there. Hey, what's up, guys? Whoa, he looks exactly like me, but but he sounds exactly like you, Jason. He does sound like me. I never noticed that before. 
Actually, Casey, if you listen closely, you can hear the Casey of this Earth doesn't sound so much like Adam as he does you doing an impression of Adam. Jason, dear, lunch will be in five. That's my mom. I better get going soon. Wow. So on this planet, not only is Adam Jason, but also Adam's mom and this planet's version of me all have the same voice. Excuse me, are you Jason? I'm Jason. Oh, he probably means you. I'm Jason. What can I do you for? I have a delivery for Jason. Sign here, please. Sure thing. Uncanny. Oh, hey, is that a radio you have there in the dash of your multiversal portal hopper machine? It most certainly is. Do you mind switching on the game? I wanted to catch the last inning. Sure thing. Thanks for letting me join you. Sure thing. Well, you've got the right idea, huh, Jason? Nothing like the roar of the ballpark on the radio, got your baseball cap on, and drinking a nice cold pop. Say, that's one of my favorite flavors. Oh, yeah, Dr. Adam is my favorite flavor of pop, too. We also have some Mr. Adam in the garage. That's where we keep the pop. You wouldn't mind sharing one of those pops with me, would you? Of course. Mom, can you bring me another pop? That's one pop coming right up, sweetie. Adam, I'll take a pop, too, if you have a pop to share. Sure thing, Casey. Mom, make that two pops. Well, if you're handing them out, I wouldn't say no. That's three pops, Ma. You know, I know pop's bad for you, the sugar and all, but I just can't help it. I just keep telling my wife whenever she goes to the store, make sure to buy more pop. You boys sure do love your pop. I brought the whole case. The whole case of pop. Thanks for the pop, Mom. Here you go, guys. One pop for you, and here's a pop for you, Jason. And Casey, don't forget your pop. Ah, thanks for the pop, young man. Excuse me, is that the game you're listening to? Sure is. Mind if I join you? Would you mind if I help myself to one of those pops? Well, hey there, neighbor, and of course, there's enough pop to go around. Da-da, pop, pop. Ah, Junior, now, you're too young for pop. Rough, rough, bark. Down, boy. Don't worry, he's friendly. He must just want one of those refreshing pops. Oh, my God, someone kill me. Are you ready to get out of here, Casey? Where are we going? And can I bring my pop? He was talking to me. Hey, you look just like me. Shut up. Yes, I'm you. You're me from another reality. It would boggle your little mind. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. Actually, I traveled the multiverse for a while with this guy. He was actually the real version of a fictional character, Adam. I had made up for a podcast where I did this fake voice as a joke, and everyone thought Adam was a real dude, but really it was just me. See, I, of course, sound like this, but Adam would sound like this. Hey, I'm Adam. It's pretty funny, right? Anyway, I found this diary written by someone named Jason, so, you know, I thought it was written by my buddy Jason over there, the guy with the podcast. Pop, but it wasn't. The funny thing is, after traveling the multiverse, it turns out the diary actually was really originally from... Oh my god, you are the worst person I have ever met. Jason, how do you work this thing? Because I'm just going to start pushing buttons to go anywhere. Anywhere but here. Okay, I'm coming. Thanks for the soda, kid. Hey, no worries. If you two ever return, there will always be two pops waiting for you in the garage fridge. The one where I keep the pop. Yeah, yeah, well, I've I've got two pops for you. I'm going to pop you in the face, and, and then I'm going to pop you right in the d- Bye.
We cross an imaginary threshold, and yet they sense the crossing, and they are all around us. We have entered the battery. In order to pass the trial of the three bats, the man had to defeat four bats in single combat. It was called the trial of the three bats, not because of the number of bats one had to defeat in single combat in order to pass it, because then it would have been called the trial of the four bats, but rather it was called the trial of the three bats because it had been invented by three bats and they had named it after themselves in a general sense. The man climbed the mountain, his boots slipping on the slick rocks as rain poured down upon him and lightning struck every tree he looked at as a candidate for shelter, and thunder boomed with a voice as deep as a dead whale's huge sightless eye. The man was armed with only two weapons, a sharp knife and a dull knife. The dull knife was supposed to be a sharp knife too, but the place he'd ordered the knives from had ripped him off and he hadn't had enough time to return the dull knife before the beginning of his quest to pass the trial of the three bats. His clothes as he climbed the mountain in the storm were of the traditional garb variety, albeit wetter than one traditionally imagines traditional garb to be. His helmet was made from wax-coated cardboard, the one material he thought capable of preventing the bat's sonar from penetrating his skull and liquefying his brain. He had done a lot of research before embarking on his quest to conquer the trial of the three bats. No one could question the sheer volume of his research, but some may be tempted to question the validity of his sources, that's all I'm saying. Upon reaching the summit of the mountain, the man stood in the storm and looked down at the iron trapdoor at his feet. Then, with rain pinging off the metal, the man stooped down, grasped the trapdoor by its handle, and opened it, revealing a ladder leading down into the guts of this, the most menacing mountain of all. So menacing was this mountain, in fact, that some people called it by its official name, Mount Menacing. Most people just called it by its nickname, though, which was Mount Menace, and one local guy just called the mountain Dennis, a reference that shouldn't have been too obscure for most people, but somehow was. As the man climbed down the ladder into the guts of Mount Menacing, the trapdoor slammed shut above him and he was plunged into darkness. He kept climbing down until, after a long time, his feet came to rest on the hard floor of a cavern. Nervous, the man drew his two knives, sharp knife in his left hand, dull knife in his right hand. He heard a fluttering above him. No, behind him. No, both above and behind him. Suddenly, his dull knife was whisked from his right hand. He flailed with the sharp knife in his left hand and succeeded only in stabbing his own right forearm. Crying out, he fainted from the pain. When the man awoke, he had no idea how long he'd been unconscious and, as far as he knew, he still hadn't defeated any of the four bats. He was not making good progress on the trial of the three bats. Hearing the drip, 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 drip of dripping water, the man crawled under the drip and laid down on his back beneath the drip so that it would drip straight into his mouth and eventually slake his thirst by way of the drips. As the drip slowly wet into the back of the man's throat, he realized that he no longer had either of his knives in his possession and that his self-stabbed forearm was throbbing like a son of an unwed gun. The man sighed. He had figured the trial of the three bats would be difficult, but he thought he'd at least defeat two bats in single combat. That was starting to look like he might not even defeat one bat in single combat. He sighed, which caused him to choke on the most recent drip to enter his mouth. He coughed more and more violently, and then he rolled to his left and directly off of a cliff, the very edge of which he had been lying next to without realizing it. He did not survive the fall. 
But what the man never knew was that he had never even begun the trial of the three bats. He had not properly registered for the trial of the three bats, and so the torches that led the way from the base of the ladder to the trial of the three bats arena chamber had never been lit. So yeah, he hadn't even made it to the correct room. Who knows what stole his knives? It could have just been a regular non-trial of the three bats bat, or maybe some bird or a cave spider or something. If the man had registered properly for the trial of the three bats, and the guide torches had been lit, and he had been able to make his way to the trial of the three bats arena chamber, he would have found the following four bats he was to face in single combat awaiting him hanging upside down from glistening anthracite perches. Number one, Virginia. This bat, named Virginia for no reason that any human has ever learned, recently gave birth to a baby bat the size of a house key. Virginia's fighting style is influenced by the words of the minor prophet Amos, spiritually speaking. Her chronic migraines don't hinder her in single combat with humans. Number two is Fern. This bat is a real bruiser, brutish and brutal when a brouhaha is brewing. She packs a punch and that's not all, she also packs a slap. But humans who challenge her to single combat never know in which order she will unpack her punch and her slap, and that uncertainty often drives them to reckless stratagems that ultimately lead to their being punched senseless and slapped silly by none other than Fern. Number three is Janifer. This bat is no stranger to defeating humans who are attempting to pass the trial of the three bats in single combat. She's done it before and she'll do it again. It should be noted that her fangs are crooked. Very crooked. Those hoping that the beating Janifer administers to them will be mitigated by the cleanness of the puncture wounds she leaves in their skin will be sorely disappointed. And number four is Madigan. This bat is a great ant 900 times over. She is also corpulent and depressed. But rouse her ire by challenging her to single combat and you'll get a glimpse of the living terror she was in her slimmer youth. Her weapon of choice is two of your own ribs lashed together in a T-shape with all the ends sharpened to fine points. And so we ask ourselves, is the trial of the three bats really a thing any old joker can try to do, whether for fortune or notoriety or to prove something about him or herself to him or herself or him or herself's own sake? We don't know the answer, and thus we realize that we should have asked someone other than ourselves, since presumably we knew we didn't know the answer to the question before we even asked ourselves the question. But one thing we do know, we don't want to end up like that man did, dead because of an unwillingness to adhere to proper registration protocols. We flip through his journal, the one he left behind in his apartment back home, and within its many pages of inane musings, we discover that he thought it was called the Trial of the Three Bats because it was named in honor of three bats who were unfairly convicted in a court of law of murdering a guard and a paymaster during an armed robbery of a shoe company. Sensing the approach of a new threshold for which we aren't quite ready, we retreat. We leave. The Battery. Sorry, did I startle you? Well, good. Poetry can do that sometimes. You see, poetry isn't always fluffy bunnies, massages, and hugs from Mother Nature. Sometimes it's a karate chop in the throat from Mother Nature. That's right. 
art isn't easy, kiddos. So wipe that snotty nose, sit back in your high chair, and let me tell you a story. That's right. Let Cousin Bed read you a little poem. The Wait. Office. Cage. Office. Pain. Office. Stale. Office. Inside. Inside. Bad. Inside. Punishment. Inside. Small. Inside. Not outside. They pump the air in to make you feel like you aren't sitting still, to make you feel like you are moving free and easy through the world, but you aren't. They are lying to you. Suddenly, your eyes are open. You realize that you have been locked in a box with all the other victims, but not just any box. You open your mouth wide to scream, to sound the alarm, but as you do, Something rushes in and blocks all sound from escaping your throat. It pushes back down into your body, a weight, a weight heavier than air. But there is nothing there, nothing there. It's cold. The air in your lungs rushes up and out your nose, and the weight, the weight rushes in and takes its place. Your eyes wider than wide now. Your panic pouring out of every pore. Your eyes catch the eyes of your supervisor, who stands calmly watching you, with his arms crossed and a smirk of satisfaction on his face. You fall to your knees, clawing at your throat. Your muscles spasm. You're desperate for air, desperate to breathe, desperate to live. The weight now pushing hard inside of your lungs, with all the fear that a dying man can muster. You cough hard. Harder than you've ever coughed before, from your toes, and the weight pours out through your nose and mouth, and your breath sounds just like the scream you meant to scream when you started to sound the alarm. Sputtering and spitting, and falling and crawling, you run, run for the outdoors. The invisible weight still pouring out of your body, still partially blocking your air passages. You gasp and wheeze for clean air as you clear the reception area, and you notice the look of horror on the secretary's face. Your body slams against the door, and it flies open hard against its stop. And you fall, rolling and scraping, onto the steps. You have made it. You have made it from the ocean of corporate hell to the beach of nature's breast. The indoor world has spat you out, and you are birthed again. Into the open arms of life, you are safe. You will drown no more. Be well, my son. I have a friend named Dave, and he has a business with a guy named Brett, and it's called Featherwood Frames. They make glasses frames out of locally harvested uh, wood on pedal-powered machines, and uh, they look really cool. And you can learn more and order some at featherwoodframes.com. And this is the only one of these advertisements for Featherwood Frames that I haven't pre-written, and I think it shows. Hello, everyone. 
This is Eldon Langley again. You may remember me in my previous attempts to document the findings of the Sasquatch and later the Loch Ness Monster or Nessie, both of which were featured on prior episodes of Out of All Doors. Even though I had substantial and conclusive evidence of these two findings, I was nonetheless unable to secure the evidence and prove my findings to the world for various reasons. I've been on a now 22-year quest to find so-called mythical creatures of the world and prove their existence to the general public, a 22-year quest that has so far yielded, well, nothing. After my journey to Scotland to try to find Nessie, I was left more or less destitute and had to move back in with my elderly, unwell parents. Most of the creatures I was seeking, unfortunately, were beyond my budget, and I lapsed into a months-long depression that culminated in me being forcibly removed from a local zoo after being caught after hours trying to sneak into the very, very Velt exhibit and so-called harassing the wildlife there. That is all until I heard of the skunk ape. The skunk ape, or swamp ape, or stink ape, is a mythical creature said to inhabit the southeastern United States, including Arkansas and Florida. As I live in North Carolina, this was feasible to find, and it presented me with a chance to make good on my name, which is Eldon Langley. After reading up on the skunk ape, I excitedly borrowed the car my parents shared between them and headed down before they could say no, arriving in northern Florida in a number of hours. I picked out a camping spot and set up my tent, which wasn't so much a tent as my childhood blanket draped over a low-hanging branch. I got there early and prepared my camera and video equipment, double-checking that it was all working. I waited until nightfall, then donned my waders, turned on my flashlight, and ventured out into the swamp. At least I thought it was the swamp. I had earlier found a wooden sign with swamp painted on it and assumed it would lead me to where I needed to be. Instead, I crashed through what I thought would be a bog but turned out to be a hidden hole in the ground. The hole was completely dry and about 10 feet deep. From the bottom I looked up and in the moonlight saw four figures appear. I heard one of them say, watch out for the smelly monkey, dude, and I was about to correct him when he dumped what turned out to be beer all over me. They all laughed and walked away. I stayed in the hole the entire night. Who were these teenagers and why did they want to thwart my progress? Was I encroaching on their popular partying spot? Had they already discovered the skunk ape and didn't want anyone else horning in on their discovery? Were they hired by the skunk ape to keep me away? These questions haunted me as I waited out the night. In the morning, I was able to slowly and painfully pull myself up into the world by grabbing hunks of earth like a tall, lousy ladder. It took hours, but I got out of their hole. Nice try, guys, but your trick didn't work. I was soon out and back to my tent, which I found thrown carelessly higher in the tree, out of my grasp. 
got me again, guys. I tried to laugh at the joke, but every time I did, it turned to crying. So I eventually gave up on that and just went back to the car. When I saw the condition of the car, I no longer felt the joke was all that funny. The car was covered with splattered eggs, soap residue, and spray paint saying such things like Swamp Ape Lover and Professor Can't Find a Thing, as well as the more mysterious Drip. This was the last straw. This was my parents' car and I couldn't let my parents see it in this condition when I eventually returned home. I also wasn't going to give up on my search just because of some rowdy youngsters. It all reminded me of the time when I was in grade school, and I would spend my days at recess digging in the ground looking for fossils or meteorites, and how the other kids would point and laugh and call me Mr. Diggs too much, or dirty old Eldon, even though I was young at the time, as I mentioned. Sometimes my digging would be interrupted by a soccer ball they wanted me to believe hit me in the head by so-called accident, though I suspected otherwise. I apologize for interrupting their soccer game, but I often secretly felt mad about it. I wasn't going to go running this time, though. I waited until nightfall and then strode out in the same direction, certain of finding my skunk ape, or at least giving those youths an earful, maybe getting them to pitch in on buying some cleaner for the car, or admitting their jokes weren't really all that funny. I tiptoed my way through the forest, entering what could only be swamp. Here I was, ready to catch my skunk ape in the act. I set up my video recording gear and waited. Knowing patience is the only way to capture the impossible. Sure enough, I heard a rustling sound and saw a great hairy arm parting a large palm frond. And before my eyes, there he was. He was taller than I'd imagined and fiercely ugly. I readied my camera and was prepared to take a shot when I felt from above strange drips on my head. I tasted them again and again they were beer. I looked at the skunk ape and he saw me too. He looked quizzically at me, unsure of what I was doing. Then he looked up and saw the teenagers once again dumping beer on me, this time from the branches of a tree they'd climbed. Suddenly, the skunk ape walked over to me and raised his hand. I cowered, thinking he was going to strike me, but instead he reached gingerly down to touch the droplets. I was too scared to move. He tasted the droplets on his fingertips, then looked up in the tree, heard the teenagers laughing from on high, and in one mighty leap, bounded up to them. I looked up in shock as the skunk ape batted each of them out of the tree with terrible swats, each of the teenagers landing far below with heavy thuds and screams of what could only be described as pain. The skunk ape then jumped nimbly down and, using nearby saplings as a kind of rope, gathered the teenagers together and bound their wrists tightly. Finally, he gave each one a slap right across the cheek. I watched in amazement and relief, trying to catch the action on video, but the skunk ape moved at a speed I couldn't capture. Everything was a blur. Before I knew it, he was standing over me. He stank terribly with a stench that almost made me wretch. He reached out his hand and unsteadily I grabbed it, thinking I might be swatted next. Instead, the skunk ape helped me up. I told him, thank you, but I don't know if he understood me or not. 
He did a bow of some kind and then pointed at my video camera. He shook his stinky finger in his head and then beckoned for me to give the camera to him. Seeing how quickly he handled those teenagers, I had no choice but to do so. And yet, I was not sad. As I walked back to my parents' car, I felt good, very good. The skunk ape had saved me from humiliation by humiliating my humiliators. I felt honored to be protected by such a stinky yet noble creature, a powerful and amazing hominid crypto beast whose existence, at least to this observer, was never confirmed. And, and since you can't see me, I guess I just have to tell you that I'm, I'm winking right now, okay? This month, Gentleman's Mills is proud to offer a wide variety of services and products specifically designed to make your final cookouts of the summer the most memorable cookouts of the summer. Number one, Gentleman's Mills Grill Mark Remover. Tired of your grilled foods being marred with unappetizing grill marks? This specially designed blowtorch chars the entire outside of your burgers, chops, and steaks to a uniform, inedible crisp. Number two, cup holder filler. Avoid the embarrassment of being the only diner at the cookout, the cup holder of whose folding camp chair is empty. This bright orange foam cylinder is precision molded to fit some standard cup holder sizes. Number three, Gentleman's Mills Grill Cleaner. Two Gentleman's Mills employees arrive at your home unannounced to remove the unsightly grill from your patio. Number four, Bad Cook Distractor. Just send the word and Gentleman's Mills will cause one of three randomly selected tragedies to befall you just after your cookout meal is served. Your guests will be too empathetic to complain about the fact that you burned the hot dogs again. Number five, The Bad Cook Deceiver. This entirely fake but scientific-sounding magazine article informs your guests that no, it's actually not dangerous to eat undercooked chicken. And in fact, that's the way that all the fancy Manhattan chefs serve it. Number six, the propane grill de-icer. Number seven, inside-out s'mores kit. Change things up. These detailed instructions illustrated by the dandy himself show you how to make a s'more with the marshmallows on the outside. Number eight, Beer Couser. This $300 foam sleeve prevents your backyard from chilling to the temperature of your beer. Number nine, the Kiss the Cook apron. The fine print on this otherwise unremarkable apron informs your guests that upon accepting a hot dog from your grill, they are legally obligated to kiss you on pain of civil damages. Number 10, the 3D spatula. You never know when you might find a use for this five inch metal cube with a handle attached. Number 11, Gentleman's Mills Remorse Remover. This FDA acknowledged additive does not remove the fat from your burgers, but it ensures that you soon won't be worried about that at all. Number 12, Utonsils. Use these non-disposable tonsils to move the food from the plate to your mouth. Number 13, Black Ketchup. We'd tell you what we did to make this ketchup black, but we've forgotten. Your guess is as good as ours. Number 14, Convex Burger Tray. Choose the most appealing burger to eat quickly, but don't be too choosy or it'll slide onto the ground and become gross. Number 15, Potato Salad Depth Finder. Slide this rod, marked along its entire length with centimeters, down into the potato salad to see just exactly how deep that potato salad is. If the potato salad is deeper than the whole length of the rod, purchase our Potato Salad Depth Finder Extension Piece. 
Number 16, Total Recall Outdoor Cookout Edition. This edition can be watched outside if the proper cables and connecting cords are set up and the TV has somewhere to sit. The box of the case has been char-grilled to look like a summertime hamburger. Number 17, Plastic Forks. You can have too many plastic forks at a cookout, but the number is much, much higher than you're thinking. It's in the millions. If you don't yet have millions of plastic forks, then there's no reason not to buy more. Number 18, Novelty Flying Plate. Now you can have your fun and eat it too. Just take the frisbee-like disc, turn it over, fill it with food and eat. Once you're done, you can throw the disc to the next eater and so forth down the line. But don't let any food spill or you'll be this party's pooper. Number 19, Yak Tank Plus. These Tibetan yaks have been shipped in at great cost, all in order to hold extra propane tanks as they may become of use. Run out of propane? Just get another tank from one of our easy-to-locate yaks. Number 20, All Frills Grills. These paper mache decorations and ornamentations are meant specifically to be used on the grill of your choice, so that grill isn't so boring, boring, boring. Try our paper tinsel edges, paper grill handle wraparounds, or even adorn the top of the grill with eyelashes that really bring your grill to life and make it one of a kind. Note, the All Frills Grills Grill Frills are highly flammable. Number 21, Show Up Sod. This is a square foot of our finest Kentucky bluegrass lawn sample. You can bring to the party and plop down on the host's lawn to see how he measures up. Comes with its own backpack to carry the sod square discreetly. Number 22, Good Mitten. Instead of being played with a shuttlecock and flimsy rackets, Good Mitten is played with just a volleyball in hands. And number 23, Easter Egg Hunch. Why wait till Easter to look for an egg? We set up a special task force to hide several, some, one, or no Easter eggs in your yard prior to your outdoor cookout. While you're grilling, the kids can try to find the eggs, if there are in fact any eggs present. What's your hunch? Is there an egg or is the whole thing a pointless task? You have to play to find out. Welcome to the safe and beautiful place known to all of you as Nature's Serenade. I am, as always, your most benevolent and gracious host, Gregory Hugavine, or G-Honey for short. Today we are changing things up just a little bit. Change can be a scary and frightening thing, but today's change I think you will find is a most welcomed one. I am coming to you live. That's right! Today, Nature's Serenade is live, thanks to an anonymous donation. And from this day going forward, I will be doing the show live. Isn't that wonderful? I am also changing the format of the show, just a bit. 
From now on, I will begin the show by playing you a beautiful folk song inspired by nature, and you, the listeners, can be a part of the show by chiming in on Twitter. You can express how my song made you feel. You can give feedback if you choose to. So after I play the song, send me a tweet on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at ghoneyfolk, and I look forward to hearing from all of you. Okay, so to start the show off, I'm going to play you a song I spent a couple of years writing. I spent a long time writing it because I wanted to get it just perfect. It's all about the beautiful but oft-overlooked bird, the meadowlark. This song means more to me than you will ever know, because I too have felt overlooked on many occasions in my life. So I feel like this song is... It's my, it's my magnum opus of sorts. So here is my song, simply titled Meadowlark. for listening in. I think you can tell how much work was put into that beautiful song. Well, shall we get to it? Let's go to Twitter. Please feel free to share with me how that song touched you. All right? Well, let's, uh, here we go. Let's get on to Twitter here and, um, nothing yet. 
no responses just yet. Um, okay. Nothing? Really? No one wants to share? Oh, oh, wait, 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 silly me here. Um, maybe I just have to refresh my browser. Let's do that, shall we? Alright. Refreshed. And... Nothing. Nothing. Okay, nothing. Well, maybe I don't have my Twitter set up correctly. I could have sworn I... Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. Here we go. Here's a response. Good. From at Von Toller. Mr. Von Toller writes, Hey, gee, honey, big fan of the show. I've been listening for a couple of months now. Well, well, that's great. Uh, thank you so much for listening, Von. And Oh, wait, uh, looks like he sent in another tweet. I've liked all of your songs I've heard so far, with the exception of Meadowlark. That was pretty disappointing. Oh, um... Sorry for disappointing you, Vaughn. I, I guess Metal Ark maybe wasn't for everyone. Music is all subjective. Oh, well, wait, wait, wait. Another tweet. This one is from I Am The Cow Moo. <laughs> That's an interesting handle. I Am The Cow Moo. Elizabeth Bird. Elizabeth Bird writes, Metal Ark. More like meadow crap. You suck, G-Honey. Well, Miss Bird, I'm sure you could do so much better. Oh, and look, she tweets in again. If I was a meadowlark, I'd be insulted. Well, Miss Bird, with a last name like that, I guess you're halfway there, aren't you? I, for one, think they'd enjoy the song, but since meadowlarks don't speak English, we'll never really know how they feel about my song, will we? Will we, Miss Bird? <sighs> All right, does anyone who actually enjoyed the song, want to tweet in? I, I'd really appreciate a positive message right now. And I... Oh, good. Here we go. Uh, another tweet. This is from at VivCal65613. Vivian Callahan. Dear Gregory, please stop sending me messages. I have never in my life been a gym teacher. I was never your junior high gym teacher. I'm not in love with you. Please seek help. Oh, oh dear. That's, that's embarrassing. Okay. Okay, well, we've got time for one more tweet. Someone else want to chime in? Someone out there want to send good vibes to G-Honey? Someone wants to... Oh, here we go. Here we go. One last tweet. This is from at Botany Audrey. Audrey Leesman. Oh, this should be good. Gee, honey, the song is abysmal. You aren't a musician, you're a poser. You're wasting your life. Get a job, loser. I am not wasting my life. I'm actually living my life, Audrey. I'm living it. And I am not, nor have I ever been in my entire life a loser. That's it. The show's over. Goodbye, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Nature's Chardonnay. I implant these weed around me. See how strong and see how mighty I am. 
Poetry time. Cousin Ben, deal with it. Poetry can be many things to many people, just like your other friend, the outdoors. And it's not just our other friend. Nature and poetry are bosom buddies, too. These two are tight. You might even say they are homies. Nature and poetry were born right around the block from each other in the same hood. Now they have each other's backs. You mess with poetry, you mess with nature and vice versa. So, just so you know, keep that in mind. Or you might get a tsunami in your face, or a haiku to the kidney, or something. The myth. He looked like a scribble in the process of being redrawn over and over again as he walked through the heat waves. Once he was closer, they saw his shredded clothes blowing away in long ribbons. Once he had water, and time to rest, they begged him to tell them his story. The tribe of Kadu left many a fertile region in search of a land where wrath could not reach them, where the monsoon and the tornado, the earthquake and hailstorm, could not be shaken at them like a club over the head of the nature keeper. Eventually the tribe settled in a tired and hot area, sand and dust, heat sun. They battled every day, but they watered the land with the sweat of the brow, and they were blessed for the toil. Their people prospered, and their land was good. Many people spoke with great admiration for the Kadu, but the Kadu grew proud of their accomplishments, and before too many generations, they had forgotten how nature had treated them in the past. But she was ready to remind them. The Kadu were all out before the sun, harvesting the water from their collectors, checking on their crops. But then came the noise, squinting into the early darkness, their sweat not from the labor now, but from the fear, the fear that they had all forgotten. And then it came, a wall, a wave, massive and towering, Nature's club was once again raised against them. The dust and the sand rolled, sped, and boiled towards them. The elders dropped to their knees and bowed to the avenging wave in recognition and resignation. The young who knew not of nature's way tried in vain to run from her, but all was futile. The sand wave swept across every last one of them, caves filled, plants buried, people gone. Not a single scrap of evidence of the Kadu remained when the roar had stopped. The Kadu became a myth overnight, except for this one man, who scribbled on into the heat, the wind, and the sand. Close your eyes. It's a thing you do all the time without ever thinking about it, but now I'm asking you to be intentional about it. 
to make a conscious decision to drape each one of your fine eyelids down, down, down over each of their respective eyeballs, voluntarily choosing to plunge yourself into a world of darkness, but without the respite of sleep, because if you fall asleep, you won't hear the visualization exercise. You should also relax. It's hard to make relaxing sound dramatic without getting preachy. You find yourself in a perfect artificial simulation of the outdoors. You're kneeling in a meadow and the sun is shining, a late summer breeze is blowing, the sky is an impeccably realistic shade of blue, and it even manages to capture that sense of the infinite you get when you look at the actual sky. But, as real as it seems, it is not the actual outdoors, and so you reject it because you demand authenticity from your outdoors, and, withering away before the power of your forceful rejection, the simulation fades, leaving you alone in a gorgeous desert. The rocks, all different shades of red and orange and purple, merry lizards scurrying among the cactus needles, and nary a one is poked. But alas, this is an artificial simulation too. You're no more actually here in the desert than you were actually there in that meadow a minute ago. And that's when it hits you. This is just going to go on and on like this. You're just going to find yourself in outdoor simulation after outdoor simulation. And for all you know, your real self might be stuck in some indoor windowless office. Panicking slightly, you reject the desert simulation and find yourself scuba diving near a coral reef. Clownfish dart here and there and breathe through their gills, as do all of the other fish copying the clownfish. An electric eel zaps a stingray while the stingray stings the electric eel. It's a very literal illustration of the ages-old debate. Who would win in a fight, a sting or an electric shock? Preferring that the answer to that question remain a mystery, you reject the simulation of the coral reef and you find yourself in the midst of an artificial simulation of a buffalo stampede, so real that you can smell the buffalo's fresh, minty breath. You can hear the melodious tones of their beautiful bellowings. You can feel their soft, fine fur as they brush gently against you on their way to wherever it is they're stampeding. You want the buffalo to take you with them, to make you one of the herd, but they can't be persuaded. They just think you're ultimately too prominent of a scholar in the field of buffalo deception for them to ever truly trust you. Sadly, you reject the buffalo stampede simulation and find yourself in a perfect, artificial simulation of a life raft bobbing on the high seas, but you're the only one alive on board unless you count your significant other, which you definitely, definitely should. So there are two alive people on board the life raft, you and your significant other, who are both people. Except, your significant other is an artificial simulation, and it's unclear to what extent you are even real in this scenario. A seagull swoops down to pop your life raft with its beak, but when the bird's beak strikes the side of the life raft, it's the beak that takes the brunt of the impact, bending in half so it's pointing straight down now. It's hard not to feel as if the seagull got what it deserved. Wait, is that a moral lesson? Is whatever is responsible for these outdoor simulations trying to teach you something? You look around for more clues, trying to extract some meaning from what you see, but all you see is a very real-seeming simulation of an ocean. A life raft, your significant other, and a bellicose seagull flying toward the horizon with a bent beak. You don't get it. If there's a message, you don't get it. You reject the life raft simulation and find yourself deep in a tropical jungle. 
feels so real. So real, in fact, that it feels more real than real life. It feels hyper-real. This simulation of the outdoors isn't just simulating the outdoors, it's actually improving it. You sweat like a hog in the jungle humidity as you look around for some indication that this simulation was simulated for your betterment. Nothing jumps out at you. Maybe you need to think harder? Maybe think about the experience as a whole, the cumulative experience of jumping from one outdoor simulation to the next over and over. But that wouldn't be very relaxing. That would defeat the whole purpose of the visualization exercise. You shuffle around in the thick undergrowth and come across a simulated pile of rotting mangoes crawling with simulated insects the size of your thumbs. Ew. You reject the jungle simulation and immediately find yourself on a tropical beach complete with crabs walking sideways in an accurate simulation of the actual direction in which crabs walk, that being sideways, unless that's a myth. You're still not learning anything and it's frustrating to not know if it's even worth being frustrated over not learning anything when it's distinctly possible that you aren't even supposed to be learning anything. But still, there was something about that seagull incident that just felt instructive. You just can't quite put your finger on it. You sit down on the sand. Okay, you're really going to focus this time. You're going to open yourself up and give this simulation time to reveal its purpose to you. You wait like 10 seconds and then you're like, forget this, and you reject the beach simulation, instantly finding yourself back among the simulated stampeding buffalo herd. Except now they're stampeding the other direction. Or at least they were stampeding the other direction, but as soon as you show up, they all come to a screeching halt, looking at you, and then each other, and then back at you. They seem nervous. You start to feel like you've done something wrong, like maybe it would be better if you just left. You reject the buffalo stampede simulation, but just as you do, one of the buffalo steps forward and says, Wait! But it's too late. You already rejected that simulation, and it disappears replaced by a simulation of a city park in autumn wherein children are throwing frisbees, but no one, and I mean no one, is catching those frisbees. You immediately reject this park simulation in an attempt to return to the buffalo one to see what the buffalo had to say, but instead of going back to the buffalo simulation, you find yourself in a picturesque swamp, which you reject only to find yourself on the summit of a low, low mountain, which you reject only to find yourself on what can best be described as a light tundra, which you reject only to find yourself in the middle of a sparkling field of wheat or maybe beans or wait, no, that's neither wheat nor beans. But anyway, you reject the simulation and you find yourself, well, you find yourself again surrounded by buffalo. Your heart soars. You made it back. But as you spin around in a circle looking for the buffalo who tried to speak to you, you realize that you don't recognize any of these buffalo, and they sure as anything don't recognize you. These are not the same buffalo. They gaze at you with disinterest for a few moments longer, and then, heaving a heavy collective sigh, they begin to stampede off in the direction of who knows what. Well, that about does it. We'd better get you out of there before you experience the sensation of being trampled by a simulation. Open your eyes. Return to this world, this real, authentic world that someone smart has probably conclusively proven is not a simulation, and take the peace of Out of All Doors with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
Thank you for listening to the 12th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Casey Bai, Greg Lynch, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Bai, J.J. Evans, and Chris Nichols for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdurant at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you can rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 13 of Out of All Doors.